Well, good morning, everybody. We are so glad you could join us today, and we invite you to sing as we sing This Is The Day.
till I met you. I was breathing, but not alive. All my failures I tried to hide. It was mine too. Till I
Good morning and welcome to Timberwood Church. It is good to see you this morning. It is a delightful day and we celebrate the goodness of God in our lives. A few things that you want to be aware of. Number one, today we are celebrating communion and so hopefully you are prepared and have the necessary elements at your disposal so that you can celebrate. And if not, please feel free to substitute with whatever is handy as we do this in remembrance of Jesus Christ. Secondarily, yesterday we had our day of prayer where we kind of kick off the summer, spring, cycle, and that's where we walk on the prayer walk through a guided set of stations. And uh, the prayer walk is available. It's available to you anytime that you would like to take advantage of it. And the prayer sheets, the guided stations, the, the, the how-to, if you will, is sitting on the back patio in an appropriately uh, contained plastic box so that you might be able to secure one without worrying about whether or not it will be stained from the effects of elements. Just one other really important thing, my watch strap, my belt strap, and my shoes all match today. And I'm very happy about that. Let's go to Jesus in prayer. Father, we come to you. Delighted that we can be in your presence. Delighted that your spirit has sustained your church. We're grateful, O oh great God, that we are your people, that we get to follow you. And we ask... We ask that the joy that should infect our lives because of the simple fact that you, Jesus, died for us, that you rose from the grave, we pray that that joy, that delight, touches every aspect of our lives, that we celebrate who we are in you and find our identity, find our value find our life because we are followers of Jesus Christ. Bless this time. Bless this morning. Bless our church. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we invite you to join in as we sing a song about the forgiveness of God. to the riverside. 
You ever know somebody or a group of people that always seem to know everything? No matter what the question is, no matter what the topic is, they seem to always know. Now, they're great to have around. I mean, they're like a, a mobile um, walking internet search engine. They always have the information. They always have the answer. But they can also be annoying. Because it seems like every time you want to tell them something, they already know it. And the worst is when you have an idea, but they had it first. You know they didn't, but they say it with such conviction that everybody believes they really had the idea first. They always seem to be taking credit for your great idea. Most times it's not like they're trying to be jerks, but they just can't help themselves. I know right now many of you are thinking of somebody as I say this. Well, it's shocking, but it can be that way with us and God. At least that's what he says in his word. So let's turn to today's passage. We're back to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 48 in our ongoing study of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 48, starting verse 1. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on the God of Israel. The God of hosts is his name. We have to remind ourselves that most of the time in Isaiah, it's Isaiah writing, but it's God talking. Now, I say most of the time because sometimes Isaiah is the one talking. He may be talking about God or about God's people, but it is Isaiah talking. But most of the time, it's Isaiah writing, God talking. It's all inspired either way, but sometimes it's helpful to see. In today's passage, it's going to be generally God speaking directly. But what's the context? Who's he talking to? Normally, that's a minor point. Usually, we're not that focused on who he's talking to. We'll mention it, but it isn't a key point. But today, it is because we're talking about revelation. Now, when God prophesies, when he does that, it's relevant to everybody at all time. All of God's people, all of his word is relevant in all contexts and all time, but specifically there are contexts that's being spoken into. Now, this specific context can vary. 
particularly in prophecy. It's like when Jeremiah prophesies that, that God is going to use the Babylonians to destroy Jerusalem. That's going to happen in their time. That's an immediate prophecy to the people in that context. Or say when it's about the coming Messiah. The people that it's being prophesied to are never going to see the coming Messiah. It's still relevant to them, but they're not going to see it. It's about a prophecy that's something that's going to happen in the future. And then there are those prophecies that have multiple fulfillments. We've talked about it through Isaiah. Telescoping fulfillment. They'll be fulfilled maybe in the, the original hearer's time, in, in a future time, and then in an eschological time or in an end time situation. This week and next, we're going to see all different examples of this. This week, we're going to see some God talking about a prophecy that was fulfilled in the time of the hearers, but also a prophecy that's going to be fulfilled 150 years later. Still within the Old Testament, but be fulfilled to the descendants of these original hearers. And then next week, we're going to hear about a prophecy that's going to be fulfilled in the New Testament, a prophecy about the coming Messiah. So back to who. Who is God talking to in this particular passage directly? Well, it's the people of God, the Israelites, the Jews, those who swear by the name of God. And we have to remind ourselves again, Jacob had 12 sons. That's the Israelites. By this time, we're down to the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Judah, driving their name Jews from Judah. And so we have the remnant of the 12 tribes down to two tribes. And that whittling down continues, even to today, to believing Jews that believe in Jesus Christ. So we're talking about Jews, descendants of Israel, descendants of Jacob. But they're Jews and they confess to be God's people, but they don't do it in truth and right. So who are they? The descendants, but they are Jews by birth. But they really aren't right with God. They're God's people, but not right with Him. And that matters. Let's work, look at verse 3 through 5. The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth, and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them, and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate, and your neck is an iron sue, and your forehead brass, I declared to, to you from of old, before they came to pass, I announced to them, or to you, lest you should say, my idol did them, my carved image and my mental, my metal image commanded them. I find this interesting. God is saying the reason he predicts or prophesies so that his people can't take credit for what he does. We think about that for a minute. We go, well, they wouldn't do that. Really? Like, we've never known anyone to take credit for something that God's done and given God no credit for it. So the reason he foretells is so that his people can't or don't take credit for the thing which he has done, credit for themselves, whether directly by themselves or through an idol they've made. What does that mean? Why would anyone want to take credit for something that God has done? 
But isn't that what man's all about? I mean, this virus, man is going to conquer this. And man's going to take credit for it. Man is usually never going to consider that God had any part to play. In the forgiveness of sin, so often people will construct in their head that they really they didn't sin that bad. Oh, God did it, but really, I wasn't that bad a person anyway. The other thing is, it's interesting. God says he predicts things so that he gets the credit. Universally, humans think what's coming is being prophesied for our comfort and our warning. Depending on the prediction, we think, well, it's all about us. The reason God tells us something's going to happen is to let us know that it's going to happen, whether it be good, comforting, or bad, don't do it. That it really is all about us. He says it specifically in the second half of verse 5. Lest you should say, my idol did them, my carved image, my mental image, commanded them. My, my, my. By giving credit to their idol, really they're taking credit themselves. Look what I've done. I've made this thing. And because it did something good. But here is God saying, the revelation is about him. And it's a revelation. He prophesied so when something happens, we know he's truly God. And the only God. Now, most of these prophecies he's talking about happened years ago. The promised land, different things that he he promised and, and foretold. And then when they came about, the, the Israelite or the Jew is supposed to go, oh, see, God is God. When he says something's going to happen, it really does happen. But God doesn't just live in the past. He also does new things. And that's what he turns to next. Verse 6. You have heard, now see all this. That will you not declare it? From this time forth I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today you have never heard of them, lest you should say, Behold, I knew them. You have never heard, you have never heard, you have never known. Of, from all of old your ear has, been, has not been opened. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth you were called a rebel. See, God isn't just God of the past. Sometimes people can get caught up. They think the Bible, well, the Bible was last part of the Bible, we think, was written in the, uh, toward the end of the first century, 2,000 years ago, essentially. So that's God of the past. He isn't doing new today, but absolutely, God says, I I do do new today. But that's going to be a problem for the Jew. And we're going to see that next week. And obviously, for those of us that are aware of the New Testament, we know how the coming Messiah, another new thing that he's going to talk about next week, becomes a huge stumbling block for the Jew. He's doing new things 
but he doesn't, he doesn't want to tell them because they'll just take credit. They'll act treacherously. It's hard for us to understand. They won't listen to him. He says that. From old, your ears have not been opened. They won't listen to what he's saying. But he could open their ears. He could force them to understand. But he's chosen not to because they won't do what's right. And generally, we have to understand that if we were given that magic ability to understand what the future is going to be, odds are we're not going to use it correctly. It's amazing, even in, in the Christian world, the obsession some people have with, with the study of the end times, eschatology. We're told in the first chapter of Acts that we're not going to know. We are not going to know when it's going to happen. Yet we all know there's people out there obsessed, obsessed with decoding the little bit of what we're told in the Bible so that they can figure out this is how it's going to happen and this is when it's going to happen. Clearly when God tells us not to do that, we have people that do that. They deal treacherously with what God has given us to let us know that he has a plan. That we should I understand there's a plan. Be prepared for the plan. But we're not going to know perfectly when it's going to happen and how it's going to happen. It's a case of him giving us something and us saying, that's not good enough. I, I am going to figure it out. Every time I hear a radio or TV Preachers say, I've figured out Revelation. I have the answer. I just want to cringe. Well, if that's the case with a Jew, if, if, they, if he can't tell them things because they're going to act treacherously with them, why does he just cut them off? Why doesn't he just abandon them? He addresses that next. Verse 9. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God doesn't cut them, cut them off because he's in covenant with them. And when he's in covenant or, or partnership, what happens to them reflects on him. It's the same argument Moses uses back in Exodus when, when God comes down and sees the golden calf and wants to wipe them out and say, Moses, I'll start over with you. And Moses says, no, what happens to these people reflect on you. And he's acknowledging that. So instead of cutting them off, he tries to refine them through what? Through affliction. Not like silver, because with silver what we're trying to do is get rid of the bad part and keep the good. And the argument is, if he refined them like silver, he'd have nothing left because there is nothing good. That he's refining them through affliction. The, the challenges that come their way Refine them. The testing, the trials that come their way, refine them into the people. The people that reflect 
who they are through him, God's people. And what he does, he does to his own glory. Glory. See, we often think God exists for us. He works on our behalf. We are the focus of his existence. But that's backwards. It's like the premise of the book, Cat and Dog Theology. The premise is, a dog looks at you and thinks, you feed me, you pet me, you shelter me, you love me, you must be God. But a cat looks at you and thinks, you feed me, you pet me, you shelter me, you love me, I must be God. Okay, now, all you cat lovers out there, you don't need to send me an email and let me know about the wonders of great cat ownership. But how do we think? Do we think like a dog or do we think like a cat? Who is the center of our world? I've had many people read that book. And most have come away acknowledging that they're cats. That they're the center of their world. That they see God existing for them. That God's job is to take care of them. God's job is to make their life good as they define good. As we'll see in a few verses, he knows what's best for us. He wants what's best for us. But he does not exist for us. Going on, verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel whom I called. I am he. I am the first. I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth. My right hand spread out the heavens. Then I call them, and they stand forth together. Who's talking? Well, easy. It's God, right? God's talking. But for many of us, the word God, the name, doesn't really have much meaning. Or it has a meaning that we've applied to it. As John stated last week, When he uses the term I am, and he uses it over 300 times in the Bible. First in Exodus 3. When he talks to Moses and tells Moses he's going to use Moses to go out and free his people, free the Israelites, Moses goes, well, who should I tell him sent me? And he tells Moses, tell him I am who I am. Tell them, I am sent me. We can say God and all kinds of images come to our mind, but when we hear the word, the name, I am, that should have greater clarity. When God says, I am, he uses that name, he means he exists and needs nothing to exist. He exists to himself. He is unique. There is no other. He needs no other. He has existed long before there was anything else. He is holy and complete in himself. He completely is consistent in himself. He is always as he is. 
He doesn't develop or change who he is over time. I, I have good days and I have bad days. God doesn't have good days or bad days. He has days. God in the Old Testament is the same as the God in the New Testament. I am not the same person I am today that I was 20 years ago, but God is. And that's critical. I, I don't want a God that I have to worry about whether he's having a good day or not. I don't want a God that a year from now isn't so sure that he still likes Tom Wiggins. I don't want a God that, well, I can't count on. He is the same today as when he laid the foundation of the universe. The same as the million years before that happened. Verse 14. Assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him, and he will prosper in his way. Draw near to me, hear this. From the beginning I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me. In his spirit. There's a number of different people speaking there. Quite frankly, there's God, there's Isaiah, and there's Cyrus, the king of Persia. He's speaking at the end. What is all this saying? God's telling of a new thing he's going to do. He's going to do it in 150 years. And some things have to happen even before this can happen that these Jews at this moment, remember we're in the early 700s B.C., can't even imagine. He's already talked about how Babylon's going to come and conquer the southern kingdom, Judah. Now he's talking about how Cyrus, how he's going to use Cyrus to free the exile, people in exile, under the Babylonians and bring them back. He's going to do a new thing. And what he's saying is the Jews saying, no way, no way, this can't happen. They, they probably can understand how Babylon, who is starting to just be a glimmer of a problem for the Assyrians, they might be able to see how Babylon conquers, but there's no way they can imagine some Persian king, Persia at this time is not a significant player, Persian king would come and free them. They just can't get their mind around how God would do that. They can't believe it. They can't accept it because it doesn't fit their understanding of the world and God. See, the problem is they got God in a box. They've determined who God is and what he does. And it's a, it's a minor issue here, but it's going to be a major issue especially starting next week and on. See, the problem with the Messiah wasn't that they didn't want a Messiah. The Messiah didn't fit in the box 
of how they define God and how he would bring about their salvation. Going on, 17. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river, and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand, and your descendants like its grains. Their names would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. What God's saying to his people is, oh, if you'd only listened to me, if you'd only followed my commands, life would have been so much better for you. You ever thought that? If only I'd followed Jesus Christ a little closer, with a little more faith, with a little more commitment, my life and the life of my children would have been so much better. You see, it isn't that God doesn't care. He just exists without needing us. Verse 20. Go out before Babylon and flee the Chaldee. Declare this with a shout of joy and proclaim it. Send it out to the end of the earth. Say the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and the water gushed out. He's saying when the time comes, when you're freed from captivity, come back. He's using Exodus and wilderness terminology to say he's taking care of them in exile. I've cared for you while you were there, but now it's time to come back. Now through the King Cyrus, I will bring freedom and salvation. Believe that and trust me. And then he closes. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. It seems like an odd change there at the end, but really what he's saying is he's bringing them back because of his grace and mercy. They have done nothing to deserve to come back. But don't, don't abuse that grace and mercy. God's people should never assume that God has to do something for them. That he has to extend grace and mercy. Once we do that, we've started to alienate ourselves from God. He is not here to promote evil. He is not promote there to extend grace so that people can continue to do what is wicked. And this sets up next week. When he starts to foretell in probably the most powerful set of chapters in all of Isaiah about the coming servant, the Messiah. I have to admit at times, 
I've been accused of being a know-it-all, which I find shocking. But in my defense, I say, you know, I, I know a little bit about a lot of things. And I like to keep up with things and I like to study. But there are so many things I know nothing about. I have no knowledge of cooking, plumbing, gardening, car repair, anything that requires the use of my hands. I know nothing. Sports, business, maybe a little Bible. Okay, I got some knowledge there. The key for us is to want to know God and know about Him. But in knowing Him, to not try and get ahead of Him. When we think we've got God figured out, when we start taking him for granted, when we start thinking we know what he can and can't do and what he will and won't do, then we start putting ourselves and our ways above him. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we acknowledge that you are the Holy One, the other. That your name I am says it all. That you exist wholly and completely in yourself. But you chose to create this world. You chose to create us. And quite frankly, Lord, what I find more amazing, you chose to be in relationship with us. And you offer us that through your son, Jesus Christ. Help us understand what that truly is. Help us understand that even though we're not the center of the universe, if we'll just walk more closely with Jesus, you have an amazing life to offer us. It's the name of our Savior, Redeemer, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, in response to the word of God today, let's sing, Thank You, Jesus. Yeah.
So, uh, if you're like me, some of your eating patterns have changed during this uh, crazy time. Uh, getting a lot of takeout. Uh, maybe when you get the takeout, you sit in your car and you eat it, which is um, odd. Uh, the other night, we got to have a family dinner in the Wendy's parking lot. And then uh, we weren't the only ones. And then Thursday, we were picking up some uh, amazing food from, I don't know if we call it the woods anymore, or Be Merry, or what they're calling it. We call it good. Um, and, and so there was this, this whole family was like set up in the parking lot, eating their food in their camp chairs, out of their styrofoam. I know some of you are like, that's bad. Uh, we're not talking about that. But our, our eating patterns have changed. And today our, our communion patterns have changed. And frankly, probably our communion patterns have changed for the rest of eternity. Who knows? But that doesn't take away from what we are doing here today together by celebrating this mysterious thing that we call communion. And it's interesting because I think more bread has been made in homes in the past two months or six weeks than has ever been made, well, since people actually used to make their own bread. (laughs) And I think the bread is significant because it provides great comfort. I was listening to the daily um, yesterday and this lady was talking about the joy of a piece of cinnamon toast. And whether you have bread this morning or whether you have a cheese it um, or whether you have a who knows what that you're celebrating communion with, it doesn't take away from the significance of what we are doing. And one of the great things about communion for me is it Every month is a new month. It's a new opportunity. And as we were talking about, or as Tom was talking about from verse 18, this concept of listening and paying attention to God. And every time we celebrate communion, it's like a reset button. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river. And for many of us, we haven't been listening We haven't been listening or paying attention to God's commandments. And today's a great day to reset. It's a chance to say, yes, I haven't been listening, and I want to listen, and I want to reset. And with these common elements of bread and juice, we get to reset. And yeah, we might not have lived the best in our past, but today... Jesus offers us a new opportunity to listen and to pay attention, to experience his peace, the peace that only comes from relationship with him. And so usually we say we celebrate open communion at Timberwood Church. (laughs) Well, you get to celebrate communion in your home in however way you want. But it doesn't take away from this offer, this offer of a relationship with Jesus Christ this peace that surpasses all understanding, this peace like a river when we listen and respond to the invitation of Christ to be in relationship with him, to experience the freedom that comes from the forgiveness 
of his sins, of our sins, through his death and resurrection. That we wouldn't take, for, take advantage or take for granted his grace, but that we would celebrate in a new way. And we would say, starting today, I'm going to listen for today. And tomorrow when I wake up, I'm going to listen and obey. So as you listen to this next song, some of you will sing along. As you look at your elements, may we all ask ourselves, how well are we listening? How well are we listening? And where is our peace at? As we celebrate the offering of Jesus' body and blood together.
As Paul tells us, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. May we do this in remembrance of him. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Father God, we come to you this morning celebrating such a familiar event, remembering your broken body and your shed blood. We do it in a very unique way. And yet it doesn't diminish the power of the elements and what they represent. This gift that you have offered to us. Holy Spirit, we pray. We acknowledge that we as human beings have a hard time listening. We pray and ask that you would move in a way that would help us to listen more intently to you today. That we would take it one day at a time as we seek to hear your voice, respond to what it is that you call us to do, and that your peace, the peace of Christ, would reign in our lives today and each and every day as we seek to listen and remember as we remember this morning the amazing gift of salvation that comes through the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you please join in as we close today?
darkness tries to roll over my bones When sorrow comes to steal the joy I own When brokenness and pain is all I know I won't be shaken No, I won't be shaken My fear doesn't stand a chance when I stand in your love. My fear doesn't stand a chance when I stand in your love. My fear doesn't stand a chance when I stand in your love. Shame no longer has a place to hide. I'm not afraid to leave my past behind. No, I won't be shaken. No, I won't be shaken. My fear doesn't stand a chance when I stand in your love. My fear doesn't stand a chance when I stand in your love. My fear doesn't stand a chance when I. that every other time except I was never a basketball player. Join me in the communion benediction. May the Lord bless us as we embrace the new covenant that is Jesus Christ. And as we are blessed, may we be used by God to bless the world around us by living lives that are consistent with the life, death, and resurrection of our Savior. Go in peace.